Thank you for tuning in to another episode of One More Story. Parents, if you would like to skip past the interview and get straight to the first story, you can find it at the 11 minute 45 second mark. And if you are enjoying the show, please leave a review and reach out to us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at One More Story Podcast. Thank you and enjoy tonight's episode. This week on a very special episode of One More Story, my guest tonight is Kelly Cooney Salella. She is the incredibly talented producer of DreamWorks Animation's newest release, Ruby Gilman Teenage Kraken, which comes out today. And she also happens to be my wife and ride or die on this roller coaster of a ride that is parenting. Welcome to the show, darling. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm glad you could fit me in to your busy press <laughs> schedule. You're welcome. You have a packed day of things. Yeah, yeah. I have to leave in a little bit to go to a hotel in Beverly Hills where the director is doing a bunch of press and international press interviews and a couple of our actors are doing press. We've got Lana Condor who plays Ruby Gilman. She's Doing a lot of interviews today, and Annie Murphy, who plays Chelsea, the evil mermaid. And then tomorrow, Liza Koshi, who's Ruby's best friend, Margot. She's going to join them tomorrow. You've come a long way from your small town beginnings in Minnesota. <laughs> Indeed, I have. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your journey. You've been at DreamWorks basically since you landed in L.A., right? That's right. It's unheard of in Hollywood, but I've been at the same place for over two decades, which is crazy to say out loud. It was my first job out of college. I started as a production assistant and quickly became a production coordinator. The first movie I worked on was Shrek 2, which was very exciting because the Shrek movies are really beloved and I think really paved the way for a new era of animation, particularly CG animation. And, you know, worked with a great group of people that I think set me on the path to becoming a producer and the type of producer I wanted to be and the types of movies I wanted to make, which are irreverent comedy adventures for the whole family to enjoy. Growing up, were you always drawn to animation or what were some of your favorite movies or how did you... How did you find yourself on this path? Because the, the, the Cooney lore is that, I mean, the, the, you know, they're notorious Irish storytellers and exaggerators. <laughs> and there's some story going around this very large Irish Catholic family that Jeffrey Katzenberg was in an elevator or something. I think how your dad tells it. I don't know. <laughs> That's not totally true. No, I, I mean, I did say hello to Jeffrey <laughs> on my first day in an elevator. I introduced myself to him <laughs> when I found myself alone in an elevator with him. Uh, no. I never really thought about working in animation. I loved animated movies as a kid. You know, I grew up on sort of the golden age of Disney with, you know, The Little Mermaid and Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast, all those movies. But I just, I loved, I've always loved movies. I've loved storytelling. You know, like you said, I'm the youngest of five and we lived out in the country. And so no one, with like no one to play with, I would just make up stories and would pretend and have these elaborate stories play out in our backyard just with me and like our dog. So, you know, I've always enjoyed storytelling. And then in college, I studied film and television. And I think that's where I really fell in love with the idea 
of being able to spend all of your days talking about movies and analyzing movies and dissecting how, like, why the story works. And so when I moved to LA, I basically called everyone I knew who might know someone. And I happened to know someone who knew someone at DreamWorks. And that's how I got my start. And I think over time, I just fell in love with animation. Like I fell in love with the process of making animated movies because, you know, it's all about storytelling. And we iterate on the story over and over and over, as you know, <laughs> and have witnessed um, us writing and rewriting the movies. But the other thing that I love about it is just the art. You know, I think there are so many incredible, incredibly talented artists here at DreamWorks. And I still feel the same way walking through the halls that I felt the first day I walked on campus where I would just see these incredible pieces of artwork on the wall. And what's so cool is that, you know, an idea that starts on a scrap of paper just becomes this fully realized story and movie that someone can watch. And so I'll, I'll look at a shot in the movie and I'll remember how that shot came to be. You know, it started as a drawing on a piece of paper and eventually it became this very elaborate, fully realized thing. And, and just that process is fascinating to me still. That's awesome. So how did that feel? You had your international premiere of the film at Annecy. How did that feel? I mean, it's been a long journey to get where you are. What was kind of going through your head as you looked out? And it was not a small audience. I mean, that was one of the bigger theaters I think I've ever seen. Yeah, it was a pretty big theater. It was a little intimidating. <laughs> it was huge. <laughs> it actually wasn't as intimidating as when we did our crew screening and rap party uh, in Westwood, because that was a huge theater, too. And that was, you know, with all the people that had been working on the movie with us for so long and all of their families. And I think in some ways that was almost more intimidating because, you know, I love this crew and they, I know how hard they've worked and I know how excited they were to see the movie. And just to be able to be all together and celebrate that was kind of mind blowing. And, um, you know, I had a couple people who I've known for a long time talk to me afterwards and just say like, how exciting it was for them to see me standing in front of this room full of people and like talking my way through it because it has, it's been a long journey to get here. And I've really, I feel like I've grown up at DreamWorks. And so there's a lot of people that have contributed to me getting here and being able to produce a movie. And so it's just been you know, wonderful to be able to celebrate it with all of those people, both the crew who worked on the movie and then the cheerleaders that we had alongside us. I mean, yeah, it's been a, a long, grueling process, I can attest to, especially because I would say what half of this was done during COVID, right? So you had to do the Zooms and you had to work remotely. Yeah. I mean, the, a lot of the crew joined the movie remotely. We started or I started in the fall of 2019. And at that point, we only had a couple people on the movie. But by the time we went into lockdown due to COVID, I think we probably had maybe 30 people on the movie. And then over time, that grew to like 100 and then 150. And eventually, by the time we got to our full size, which is like we kind of max out at about 250 at a time. At that point, we were back in the studio and we were working under sort of a hybrid model where we would be in on-campus 
three days a week and working from home two days a week. And so it was really interesting to suddenly like be in person and have people say, well, hey, and I'd be introducing myself to them because I didn't know who they were. And they were like, I'm on your movie. (laughs) And I was like, oh, my gosh, you look so different three dimensionally because I had been so used to seeing them like flat on on this camera and like a postage stamp size, like with many other little windows of people. So to finally be in person was really wonderful. And I think was it just the right time? Because that's when you know, we were really full steam ahead and needed to be together to collaborate. So it it worked out well, but it definitely, you know, was challenging in the beginning. You work long hours. You have, you know, your work demands. You also come home and you have your parenting demands. How do you, by the end of the day, I I know you're exhausted, um, but your brain's going a million miles an hour still. How do you wind things down at night? How do you shut your brain down and drift off to sleep and kind of find that that happy, peaceful place that we're we're looking for tonight with our stories? <laughs> That's right. I think it starts with my drive home. You know, I actually was very happy to come back to the office because I like having a little bit of separation between my home life and my work life. So I really do try to use that drive home as the beginning of my like unwind and decompress from the day. It doesn't always work when I walk in the door and the dog is barking at me and the kids are talking to me all at the same time. And I'm like, I just needed another minute of quiet before I engage with everybody. Um, But, uh, you know, like I think it's our usual routine where we start with dinner and then, you know, the kids tend to get a second wind right after dinner. And so trying to like (laughs) trying to get them to calm down and move toward bedtime is challenging. And then, you know, I really like to use that time to connect with the kids. And it's really important to me to have time with each of them individually. You know, at at one point, our son Gabe was like, I don't need you to tuck me in anymore. And I was like, yeah, but I still need to tuck you in because I need that, you know, few minutes to connect before you go to bed. And so... You know, I usually use that time just to, you know, scratch their backs or to rub their forehead, anything I can do to help their bodies relax. And then I often don't tell them stories because they don't think I'm very good at it. They think you're much better. And so they're like, um, um, maybe don't try. Like, dad can just do it. Well, you're going to prove them wrong today. Yeah, I'll try. I'll try. You grew up telling your dog imaginary stories in your yard. You just revealed that to (laughs) all of our listeners. I know. I think I think you could be. I think you're you're well suited. Though that's your own that's your own private world. You're not like on. (laughs) You don't have people judging you. (laughs) Well, you can you can close your eyes, and also through the power of editing, we can make it we can make it work. We can fix it in post. Well, with that being said, should we? Should we jump in? Okay. The word is Dodger dog. <laughs> Did Gabe pick that? <laughs> I think Mara, Mara picked all these, actually. Oh, great. Yeah. Dodger dog. Okay. Once upon a time, there was a young girl who grew up in 
a really remote part of South Carolina. And her dad had, when he was a young boy, he had lived in Los Angeles. And he had decided years ago that the pace of LA was just not his pace. And he wanted to go somewhere beautiful near coastal South Carolina, but tucked away deep into the woods where there's tons of beautiful pine trees and he could have animals and he could have a farm and and he could breathe some clean air. He had so much land that he built a, a baseball field, much like Field of Dreams. It was his favorite movie growing up and he had the means and so he built this baseball field and he and his wife only had one child and her name was Kimberly. Her dad was a huge baseball fan and a huge Dodger fan and growing up she always played catch with him. She would always you know, do batting practice. She loved baseball just as much as he did. And he would always tell her these stories about how when he was a kid, he would go to Dodger games and his favorite thing to eat was a Dodger dog. And so the idea of this Dodger dog just took hold in Kimberly's mind. She just really wanted to try a Dodger dog one day. And so you know, they were far away from LA. They couldn't get Dodger dogs anywhere around. She didn't at the time realize they were just really long hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and so she, she asked her dad if they could take a trip to Los Angeles and go see the Dodgers play. Unfortunately, the dad had put all of his money into building this stadium in their yard. And so they couldn't afford a trip to Los Angeles. And so he very regretfully told Kimberly that he didn't think a trip to Los Angeles was in the cards right now, but maybe, you know, down the road they could do that. Well, Kimberly, being a very, very smart girl, decided to go online and do some research. And so she Googled Dodger dogs and she Googled the Los Angeles Dodgers and she tried to find out as much information as she could about where you could get a Dodger dog. And eventually she found out that the All-Star game was going to be played at Dodger Stadium this year. And so she was reading all about it. And it turned out that a radio station in their town was having a contest. And the prize for the contest was a trip to Los Angeles to go to the All-Star Game. And so Kimberly got really excited. She was like, oh, I can totally enter into this contest. Well, it turned out that the contest was a hot dog eating contest. And so she would have to enter in and eat as many hot dogs as possible in order to win the contest. Well, Kimberly had never entered a hot dog eating contest. I mean... It's not something you just casually enter into. I mean, it takes months of training. You have to train your stomach to tolerate not only the dog, but the bun and the water. There's a whole process. There's a, it's a, I mean, these, they have these contests every year at Coney Island, right? And you've got these skinny guys who can eat, I don't know, a hundred hot dogs. I don't really know what the number is, but it's a lot. And they just, 
they train their bodies. She told her dad she wanted to enter this hot dog eating contest. And he was like, well, Kimberly, you're, you're a 12-year-old girl. I, I don't know like what that's going to do to your digestive system. He was a, a pretty cautious guy. And he was like, I, I just don't think that's a good idea. I mean, I think you're going to get sick. Like, uh, I just, I, I, I really, I think there's probably another way we can, we can get to Dodger Stadium. But she was determined. She did not want anyone to tell her she couldn't do something. You know, and she she got that from her dad. Most people said, don't build a baseball field on your farmland. And he was like, well, Kevin Costner did it and things worked out for him. So, you know, I'm going to do it. He was stubborn. She was stubborn. And he kind of respected it. So after debating her for a little bit, he finally gave in. He said, OK, well, I got this college buddy who we would we would dare him to, to eat anything. Right. And he was this this big guy and like you could put anything in front of him chewed up pizza garlic sauce bananas he would eat raw hamburgers this guy would eat anything and he was like that's the guy we're gonna call and his name was mac mcinerney and mac mcinerney was a big guy he was a big irish guy from boston and so he called up his buddy Mac. He said, Mac, I need you to come down here to South Carolina and I need you to train Kimberly to win a hot dog eating contest. And Mac said, sure, I, I don't really have anything going on right now. I'm just sitting around, you know, eating stuff. So uh, he hopped on a flight and he showed up and they started training. And what she didn't really realize at the time is it was a lot of mind exercises, right? And, and Mac was like the Zen master of eating. And it wasn't really necessarily about the, the physical aspect of getting your stomach bigger. Although they would, they would drink gallons of, of water at a time to try and like stretch out the, the intestines a little bit, the stomach lining. But then he would do these chant circles where he would light candles and he would tell her to kind of imagine the hot dog and imagine the bun, imagine the water, and, and then the most important thing, he would say, Kimberly, I need you to imagine your stomach is a balloon, and you're blowing that balloon up very slowly, blow it up too fast, it's gonna pop. And so she did, she closed her eyes, she did her breath work, she did all that, and then she started eating the hot dogs, gradually got more into the day-to-day -day of what that hot dog eating contest would be. And so the day came for the big contest, and Kimberly felt ready. She felt ready, but she was very nervous. She walked into the contest, and there were about five really big dudes who all looked like they could handle a lot of hot dogs. And one of the guys said to her, what are you doing here, little girl? Is your dad entering the contest? And Kimberly said, well, no, I'm entering the contest. And the guy laughed. And Kimberly looked at him and said, what's so funny? And the guy said, a little thing like you is gonna enter a hot dog eating contest against all us guys. And she said, yep. And he said, all right, well, good luck there, little lady. As he walked away, Kimberly whispered to herself, I'm not little, I'm fierce. So she sat down at the table next to all of these other big guys. And they all were, you know, drinking water and trying to get themselves ready and psych themselves up. And Kimberly just sat there very calmly 
going over her breathing exercises and thinking about her mantra. And she kept repeating to herself over and over again, be the dog, be the dog. And soon it came time for the contest to start. They put a giant plate of hot dogs in front of her. I mean, Kimberly had never seen so many hot dogs in her entire life, and she was feeling really overwhelmed at this point. And she looked over to the side, and the guy who had talked to her before just gave her this wicked little smile. And at first, Kimberly's stomach dropped when he did that. But then she took a deep breath, and she said to herself, I can do this. And soon, the whistle blew. And they started eating the hot dogs and Kimberly was just pounding them and pounding them. And she was throwing one hot dog in after the other. And she looked to her right and she looked to her left. And each of the guys, they were going just as fast as she was, if not faster. And she was starting to get nervous. And she was like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. And then she saw Mac McInerney out in the crowd. And they locked eyes and he nodded to her. And she smiled and she continued on and she blocked everything else out and just focused on the hot dog in front of her. And she just focused on the next hot dog and then the next hot dog. She ignored the fact that there was an entire pile of hot dogs in front of her and that there were people on either side of her. She just blocked it all out and she just focused on the next hot dog and getting that down. Soon, the other guys around her started to slow, and then soon some of them gave up. But Kimberly just kept on going and kept on going, and she blocked them out. And toward the end, it was just her and the original guy that had talked to her at the beginning of the contest. He couldn't believe that she was still there. He was starting to get really tired, and his stomach was getting really full, and he was sweating, and his face was red. And Kimberly just calmly focused on the next hot dog. And soon she started to slow down because she was starting to get pretty full too. And she looked over at the guy and he was taking a breath. He hadn't quite given up yet. And he was trying to like, you know, stuff that last hot dog in. And Kimberly just very delicately picked up one more hot dog and ate it. And the guy couldn't get the other hot dog down. And so finally he gave up. And Kimberly had won. No one could believe it. The whole crowd erupted into cheers. They couldn't believe that this 12-year-old girl had defeated all of these guys. And Kimberly just smiled and nodded and waved to her dad and to Mac and walked off the stage. And so a few weeks later, Kimberly found herself at Dodger Stadium in line for a Dodger dog. And she finally got to the front of the line. She was so excited. Her heart was racing. Her fingers were shaking. She was starting to sweat on her forehead. And she proudly asked the hot dog guy, Hello, sir. Could I please have one Dodger dog? And he said, Sure. He handed it to her. She opened it very slowly. She first smelled it. Because the aroma was something that her dad had often talked about but the problem was is she had eaten so many hot dogs at that hot dog eating contest she couldn't go through with it she couldn't eat the dodger dog and she was she was devastated and she started to cry a little bit and her, her father pulled her aside he said kimberly he said look it may not be the right time now but why don't we take this back to the hotel if you don't decide to eat it now, 
these things are just reheated anyway. I mean, they don't make them fresh. They just, you know, they're in the tin foil. You get them in like two seconds. He said, if you, if you change your mind, we'll ask them to heat it up at the hotel kitchen later tonight so you can enjoy your Dodger dog. So they wrapped it back up. They watched the All-Star game. It was an amazing game. She got to see all of her favorite players. She ate other things. She had some cotton candy. She had some Dippin' Dots, some popcorn, some peanuts. When she got back to the hotel, that Dodger dog was still there. Her dad had it. And she looked at it and she was like, you know, Dad, I had some good food today, but I think I got room for one more thing. So they kindly asked the chef at the hotel to to heat up the dog for her. And he did. He served it on a plate with fancy silverware with a Shirley Temple. And she sat down and she ate it with a fork and a knife because she wanted to respect the Dodger dog. And boy, it did not disappoint. It was the most delicious hot dog she had ever eaten. And she was so thankful to her dad. And it was the happiest day of her life. The end. Kelly Cooney Salella, are you ready for your solo story? No. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, yes, I can do it. All right. The word is bird. Once upon a time, there was a family that had a lovely lab plot hound named Maisie. And Maisie was the sweetest dog in the whole world. She loved to play with the kids. She loved to go on walks. She loved to go hiking. And she always chased after squirrels. Squirrels, birds, any small animals that she saw when she was walking. She would chase after them. She was so excited. And the family just thought it was because, as a plot hound, she was meant to be a hunting dog. And so they always just assumed that Maisie was chasing after all these animals because she was a hunting dog. Then one day, the family found a nest in their magnolia tree. And in that nest were three little eggs. The family couldn't believe it. The kids would look at the nest every day to see if the eggs had hatched. They kept their eye on it. And every once in a while, they would see the mama bird come back and sit on the nest. And then she would go off and hunt, and then she'd come back and sit on the nest. And and the whole family kept track of this family of birds, this mama and these three little eggs. And they watched and they waited. And all this time, Maisie would watch the family kind of confused. Like, why are they looking at this tree? Humans are so weird. But... You know, eventually the family would stop looking at the nest and they would go back to playing with Maisie. And Maisie loved that because she loved to play fetch. She loved to get treats. She loved to get belly scratches. And she loved to get that attention. But then one day, the eggs hatched and there were three little baby birds. The family could not believe it. They were so cute and so tiny. The mom would fly off and come back and give worms to the little baby birds and the birds kept growing bigger and bigger and eventually they began to disappear and they would see them less and less frequently until one day there was just one bird left the family just assumed that the mom and the others had flown away but this one little bird was there well the family 
you know, didn't know what to do. They just kept watching to see what was going to happen to this baby bird. And then one day, Maisie was sitting out in the backyard and she was all by herself. The family was inside, busy doing other things that families do. And Maisie was just sitting in the sun. And suddenly the baby bird flew down from the nest and sat right next down to Maisie. Maisie kind of looked for a second, like, what's happening? I've never had a bird just fly up to me before. But she knew somehow that this bird was friendly and that maybe it was looking for a friend too. So Maisie very slowly moved her nose towards the bird. And the bird took a hop back. And so Maisie stopped. And she just looked at the bird. And then the bird got very curious and hopped forward toward Maisie. Maisie didn't move. She just waited. And then the bird hopped another step closer to Maisie. Well, then Maisie started to feel a little bit more confident. And so she slowly leaned her nose forward. And this time the bird didn't hop backwards. The bird stayed right where she was. And she looked Maisie in the eye. And Maisie looked back at her. And then slowly the bird came forward and hopped up right on Maisie's nose. Maisie couldn't believe it. She was she was frozen in place. She was like, she couldn't believe that this bird had hopped up on her nose. What was she supposed to do? She knew as a dog she was supposed to, you know, try to attack the bird or something. But something in her told her that she shouldn't attack this bird. So then the bird hopped up on Maisie's head. And Maisie kind of looked up and slowly stood up. And then the bird flew off. And Maisie ran in a circle around the yard. And the bird followed her. And then Maisie stopped. And the bird stopped. And again, perched herself on top of Maisie's head. Maisie thought this was like the goofiest thing she'd ever seen. So she did it again. She ran around the yard and the bird followed her. And when Maisie stopped, the bird landed on her head. She couldn't believe it. Now at this point, the two kids who lived in the house had noticed that Maisie kept running around in circles in the yard and they were wondering what the heck was happening. So they looked out the window and they could not believe what they saw. Maisie was there with a bird perched on her head. How could this be? Normally Maisie would be attacking a bird or chasing after it. And yet here was Maisie playing with this bird. They couldn't believe it. Eventually, the bird flew back up into the nest and Maisie looked up and kind of knowingly went back inside. She knew that the bird was done playing. So then, you know, life went on and it was time for dinner. And so Maisie was fed and she went for her walk. And when she got back from her walk, she was out in the yard and the bird came down again. And the same thing happened again. Maisie and the bird ran in circles and they followed. And this went on for like a good week. Every night, the bird and Maisie would play and the family couldn't believe their eyes. They couldn't believe that this dog who had spent her whole life chasing after birds and squirrels suddenly had befriended this bird. But then one day came and the bird had gotten really big and it was starting to get cold where they lived. And instinctually, the bird knew that it was time for it to fly south for the winter. And so she spent one last day running in circles in the yard with Maisie and then it came time to say goodbye. And so the bird nuzzled up to Maisie, and the two of them were cheek to cheek, cuddling in the warm sunlight as the sun went down, and the sky started to grow dark, and the air grew cold, and the bird nodded at Maisie, and Maisie nodded at the bird, 
And then the bird flew off. And Maisie was alone again in the backyard. And she was starting to feel a little sad because her good friend the bird had gone. And time passed on. Winter came. It snowed. And then soon the snow started to melt. It got warmer again. And as the flowers started to bloom, Maisie was sitting out in the backyard. And she was sitting in the sun. It was like that nice spring day, you know, where it's still a little bit chilly out but the sun is starting to shine and poke through, when suddenly she heard, like, the sound of flapping wings. And she looked up, and there was the bird. It had come back to visit her. Maisie couldn't believe it. She got so excited. She ran around the yard, wagging her tail, jumping up and down. And the bird chased after her. And it was like no time had passed at all. And so they spent that summer together, playing in the backyard. The bird had built a new nest, and this time she laid her own eggs. And she took care of those eggs, and the family watched. And soon, the bird gave birth to more babies. And now, there was a whole family of birds chasing Maisie around. And Maisie was so sweet with them. She was so gentle. And soon, summer started to come to an end, and fall was coming, and it was getting colder. And Maisie knew it was time for these birds to fly south for the winter. And so the day came where the mama bird and her two little babies needed to leave, and so she said goodbye, and they flew off. But Maisie knew, somewhere deep in her heart, she knew that that bird would be back, and she was right. Every year from that day on, that bird would come back, and every year she would bring her babies back with her, and Maisie got to see them grow up and have their own babies, and each year she got to have a visit from her good friend, the bird. The end. Thank you to Kelly Cooney Salella for being on the show tonight. And thank you to our listeners. Be sure to catch Ruby Gilman Teenage Kraken. It opens today, nationwide, only in theaters. Have a wonderful night.